invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at Galatians 2, 17 to 21. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we've just sung and asked you to speak. We've just read your word through which you speak to us. And Lord, with your help, we intend to meditate on these truths for the next few moments, and we would ask that your spirit would help us to see truth, to embrace it, and follow it. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. As a follower of Jesus Christ, one who stakes his life on the cross of Jesus Christ, one who has tasted the goodness of the grace of God through the cross, I think one of the most important thoughts that could be considered or contemplated would be to think that Christ died purposelessly, without any purpose, without any accomplishment. To think of our Lord, who we love, who we know, went to the cross, who endured great mockery, shame, beating, did that for no reason. It's an abhorrent thought. So to think of it as a meaningless death that did nothing. I hope you would share that sentiment that to think of Christ hanging on the cross, dying, and accomplishing nothing, making no difference in the world, that's a thought you would repudiate. And yet the potential for the cross of Christ to be meaningless is right there at the end of what we just read. Look at verse 21 again. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, we'd always all repudiate the idea that Christ died for no purpose, but I think this text suggests that there may be conditions under which we might live in such a way that his death is purposeless. Sometimes the things that we do speak louder than the things that we say we believe. Sometimes our manner of life betrays what we profess to believe. I doubt that there's a purpose in this room who would say that Christ died for no purpose, and yet 
the way that we live our lives at times is in such a way that we regard effectively Christ's death to be purposeless. There may be some ways that you can conduct your life, some patterns of thinking, patterns of conduct, that actually promote that Christ died for no purpose. You wouldn't use the words, but your life shows it to be true. We need to see this text because our hearts, as humans, are constantly drawn to try to get ourselves the credit. We want to be proven right by our deeds, by what we do. And the way in which we make Christ's death look to be purposeless is if we live as though righteousness were through the law, or if righteousness were through our own obedience, or through righteousness was through our own good works. When we live that way, think that way, conduct ourselves that way, we're effectively saying, Christ died for no reason, because I can save myself. I don't want anyone to live that way. I hope you don't want to live that way. We want to live firmly believing in the grace of Christ. We do not want to nullify the grace of Christ. In this section of Galatians, we're talking about justification. Justification has just been explained by Paul in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, and then he leads into this section. And he goes into this section because there is a question that can erupt when you understand what Christ accomplished at the cross and what you receive when you believe in Christ. And the question that erupts is in verse 17. Paul says, If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. And here's the question. Is Christ then a servant of sin? That's the question that Paul is addressing this in this section. And it will all kind of culminate in verse 21, his answer to it. But he's going to present to us a logical reasoned explanation to that question, is Christ a servant of sin? And so you've got at the beginning of this section a statement or a question asking, does Christ serve sin, which should be abhorrent to us? And at the bottom of the section, you've got another uh, potentiality. Was Christ's death meaningless? And sandwiched in the middle are answers to those two problems. And that's what I want to lead you through. I want to help you see that Paul is answering the question, is Christ a servant of sin? And what the answer to that is. Justification, Paul says, is not by works of the law in verse 16. Meaning that there is no good any human can do to earn a right standing before God. Justification is a legal declaration by God towards a sinner who has put in his faith in Christ that that person is forgiven of all their guilt and regarded as righteous in the presence of God, not because of any righteousness they have done, but because of righteousness Christ has accomplished at the cross. So consider this. You, a guilty sinner, 
who has lived your life each day with sin in your life, one day will stand before God and be welcomed into his kingdom, not because of the good that you have done, but because of Jesus Christ. And it could erupt the question, does Christ approve of sin? Is Christ okay with sin? Because you're a sinner, and you get to be in Christ's kingdom. So is Christ okay with sin? The gospel is such a profoundly unique message. It is, it is surely divine. It is wonderful. It is good. But a lot of times when people hear it, they have problems with it. When they hear about the gospel, they say, so are you saying that somebody could live a life of murdering, adultery, lying, slandering, and on their deathbed, they repent and believe in Jesus and they get to go to heaven? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Are you saying that somebody who molested a child... abused in the worst kind of way, can get into heaven? Yeah, that's what we're saying. It's a shocking message. People don't like it because we want to get into heaven on our own good works and we want the people who are worse than us to go to hell. The gospel message says that for those who put their faith in Christ, they don't get to go to heaven on the basis of their righteousness. They get to go to heaven on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. And so it provokes these questions. Well, does Christ approve sin? Is Christ a servant of sin? This section is really dominated by answering that question. And the way that Paul answers it is kind of a a maze. Like one of those mazes you do on paper. You can't kind of find your way out of it. He gets down nitty-gritty and you've got to think through this. So I hope that you'll spend this time thinking with me about Paul's answer to this question because it's a significant question. And it deserves a significant answer. And with an economy of words, Paul lays out the answer for us, and it's very satisfying, but you've got to work at it. You've got to think through this. Paul really lays out two responses to this question, is Christ a servant of sin? And he gives two responses. Verse 18, notice 4. Verse 19, notice 4. Those are the responses to that question, is Christ a servant of sin? Of sin. So the objection to justification by faith in Christ and not by works of the law is simply as Christ condoning sin in some way. And Paul is going to provide proof that that objection is wrong. But before he gives proof, notice what he says in verse 17. 
If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? His first response to that, before he gets into any of the, the logical answers, is certainly not. The KJV used to would, would translated it, uh, God forbid. doesn't actually use the word God in there, but the emphatic negation of this question is, Paul is just simply saying, if you have any notion that Christ would ever condone or encourage sin, you are way off. You don't know Christ, if you would think that of Christ. So that's Paul's first response to that, is simply to uh, set the stage, no way, Jose, if he would add that. To be a servant of sin, some translations would say, is Christ then one who encourages sin? Does Christ serve the interests of sin? Is Christ an agent for sin? You get the picture of what the accusation is. This is in response to, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we were found to be sinners. This is important. Let me set this up a little bit because even in the, the statement of the objection, Paul is inserting some ideas that we need to keep in our minds as we work through this. Get the context here. Paul, back in chapter 2, verse 11, begins to recount a meeting that he has with Peter in Antioch. When Peter and Paul were at Antioch, Paul had to rebuke Peter. Peter for some of the actions that he was taking. Peter had been eating with Gentiles, and then some men came saying, that's not okay. Gentiles need to come to the law and come to Christ in order to be saved. And so Peter started to remove himself from the Gentiles and only ate with Jews again. And Paul does not accept this, and in verse 14 steps in and speaks to Peter before everybody and rebukes him. And says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The text goes on and basically recounts Paul's interaction with Peter. Notice verse 15. He goes on, we ourselves, referring to Peter and Paul, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And so this continues basically the essence of the argument that Paul brings to Peter. And it continues on in verse 17 and says, But if in our our endeavor to be justified in Christ. He's basically talking about Jews. Jews who grew up under the law, who had kept the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the dietary laws, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you can wear, what you uh, can't wear, who you can be around, who you can't be around, how to wash your hands, when to wash your hands, what to do when you should have something show up on your a spot on your body, how to go and make sacrifices. All those laws were things that Peter and Paul lived by. That was their life. And he says, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, the assumption is be justified in Christ and not by works of the law. If they're looking for their righteousness now by faith in Christ, not by works, we too were found to be sinners Is Christ then a servant of sin? And the point that is being made is that when Peter and Paul came to Christ, they abandoned their hope 
of being justified by works of the law. And so they're no longer under the authority of the law as means by which they will be acceptable to God. And because they are now removed from the authority of the law, they are now in the camp of those Gentiles who don't have the law, namely sinners. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And Paul is basically saying, because we come to faith in Christ and we're justified that way, we're in a sense regarded as Gentile sinners because we're not obligated to keep the law anymore as means of our justification. And so the question pops up to Jewish minds, if you have Jews who are saying we are going to be right with God on the basis of Christ and not by our works of the law, and you have these Jews seeing other Jews doing this, who are no longer keeping the law, they're thinking, well, those Jews now look like Gentiles. They look like sinners. So is Christ saying it's okay for somebody to get into heaven and not keep the law anymore and just kind of go rampant and do whatever you want? Ten Commandments, out the window. Dietary laws, out the window. Do what you want. They look lawless. So is Christ serving sin? That's the answer that Paul is seeking to bring. And clearly the answer is certainly not. The first response, again, Paul gives is no way. But he develops this a bit more. So let me give you two reasons Christ is not a servant of sin. Christ, two reasons Christ is not a servant of sin. Verse 18 is the first one. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Let me elaborate on that. The reason Christ is not a servant of sin is because the real proof of transgressing the law would be to put yourself back under the law that you have considered yourself free from. So if you put yourself back under the law, then you, not Christ, Prove you're a transgressor of the law you violated when you removed yourself from it. Now, this is where it starts to get a little bit heady. This statement that Paul makes, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to a transgressor, you kind of think, well, what, what is he talking about? And how does that prove that Christ is not a servant of sin? Well, just consider the metaphor that Paul brings here. Consider that you tear down a building. You destroy it down. You take everything out. It's foundation. Everything is just obliterated. And now you live life without that structure. And then one day you come back and you build that building up again. Exactly as it was. Stone for stone, brick for brick, window for window. And you have it exactly as it was. What are you saying about what you did in the first place? Well, you're saying that you were wrong to tear it down in the first place, otherwise you shouldn't have built it up again. Well, here's where it really hits the ground. Consider Peter. Peter had come to faith in Christ. He was justified before God on the basis of faith in Christ alone. Peter realized that. He no longer goes to the law as means by which he'll be acceptable to God. You remember the life of Peter. Remember Acts chapter 10. 
The sheet comes down from heaven. Peter sees all these unclean animals, and the Lord says to Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's response is, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter's been a keeper of the law. He's kept the law to the T, in a sense. But now, after that vision, Peter goes to a Gentile's house. Peter goes and fellowships with a Gentile who comes to faith in Christ. And when he goes to Antioch, he goes and eats with Gentiles. Clearly, he's not keeping the law anymore. He's removed himself from that. He's tore that down as means by which he considers himself right before God. It's no longer on him. His good works will not save him, and he realizes that. And so now he can fellowship with Gentile sinners who have come to Christ. And so he's put himself out from under law. He's torn that down that has no regard for his life anymore. But then, at Antioch, some Jews come and say, Peter, you can't eat with Gentiles. The law doesn't allow it. And Peter gets intimidated, and he leaves the Gentiles and starts eating with Jews again. And when he does that, he rebuilds the very law that he had torn down. And so what does that implicate him for what he did before? Well, it basically says that when he was eating with Gentiles, he was wrong. And so the reason that Christ is not a servant of sin is because the way that you actually show that you're a sinner is if you actually go back and try to keep the law again. Because you're showing that you're wrong to have abandoned it in the first place. Christ isn't serving sin. In that case, you are. You're acknowledging that you did what was wrong, if it was indeed wrong. So Christ is not a servant of sin when people are justified in him and not by works of the law. Rather, people are proven transgressors of the law when they move back from faith into the the law or law-keeping. Unfortunately, this happens. People come to faith in Christ. They, they understand that it's all of grace. It's all of Christ. It's all of his death on the cross. But slowly you, you build up works that you feel like you've got to keep doing in order to be right before God, and you, you layer it up, and you keep on showing all of these things that you need to do in order to be right before God. And so you're effectively saying that when you weren't keeping those things, you were a sinner. Christ is not a servant of sin. It's when we go back and put ourselves under law-keeping as the means of salvation that we are found to be sinners. Here's the second reason Christ is not a servant of sin. Verse 19, and this is really the substantial one. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. The accusation was that if you seek to be justified in Christ and not by works of the law, that makes you free from the law and so basically a constant sinner just doing whatever feels good, whatever you want. Being, but if being justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law is, the, is for the purpose so that you might live to God, then clearly Christ is not a servant of sin. Did you follow that? If you come to Christ 
to be justified in him so that you are not justified by works of the law, but by faith in him. And as a result, you might live to God. Clearly, Christ is not a servant of sin. The argument falls flat. Christ is not a servant of sin when the people he justifies end up living to God. Presumably, people who put themselves under the law, the reason that they would at least articulate for why they want to do that is so that they would live to God. It's God's law. We want to do what God says, and so we're living to God by keeping the law. Paul is saying that when you're justified by faith in Christ, you die to the law so that you might actually live to God. It's a shocking statement. The implication is that those who are putting themselves under law-keeping, even God's law, are not living to God. It is the people who are justified by faith and not by works of the law who are actually living to God. It's totally inverted. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just consider these other verses that indicate the reason for why we seek salvation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for us. Why did he die for us? So that we wouldn't live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The reason Christ died for us is that we might live with him. Titus chapter 2, 13 and 14. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That does not at all sound like Christ came to die for us, forgive us of our sins, and just tell us, go do whatever you want. He came to purify us so that we would serve the living God and be zealous for good works. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Christ's blood comes to purify us so that we might serve God. It's not so that we would live for ourselves. Not at all. This is what Paul is saying, verse 19 of chapter 2 of Galatians, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Paul gets the law. He understands that when he put himself under the law, he really died to the law. What he means by that is when you try to keep the law as the means of your justification before God, you'll find yourself a sinner. You'll find yourself guilty because you don't keep it. Everyone who puts themselves under the law is obligated to keep the whole law. If you don't keep all of it, from A to Z, 
then you are guilty of all of it. And you are found to be a sinner then. And the very law that you sought justification from is the very law that condemns you to death. And so you die to the law. You're condemned under it. Everyone who's trying to live by a law before God as their means of being right with him are really dead through that same law. But the reason that he died to the law was so that he might live to God. And he goes on to explain this in probably the most famous verse of this book. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. What happened? Christ went to the cross. And when he was on the cross, he was reckoned to be cursed. That's what it says in Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ was cursed on the cross. And it says, Paul says that he's been crucified with Christ. And the whole point is that God regards those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as having been crucified with Christ. He regards you, guilty sinner, if your faith is in Christ, as having been hung there with Jesus Christ, all of your sin put there, imputed to Christ, so that he bears the very curse that you deserve under the law. And so as that curse is poured out on Jesus Christ, it's really poured out in God's mind for the sake of reducing your sins or taking them away, paying the penalty for them. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This means that through the curse of the law, you've died to the law. It's been dealt with. The condemnation due to you was dealt with at the cross of Christ. In this case, you've died to the law and it will no longer condemn you. Those crucified with Christ have had their sins imputed to Christ on the cross, and therefore the condemnation of the law is lifted. But not only have you been crucified with Christ, and so that your obligation to the law is now done because the debt has been paid fully and completely, it says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You've died but now you've been raised with Christ. Their lives, for those who've just been justified by faith in Christ, means their lives are no longer lived by living under the authority of the law by their own strength. Now, you have the very life of Christ in you. You're not under the law. Someone has died for you, and you live by faith now in the one who died for you. Christ is not a servant of sin because when he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. Christ is not a servant of sin because when 
He was crucified for you. He went into the grave and rose again so that his life might be in you. Christ, who is the Holy One, who is without sin, who is perfect and pure, now dwells in those who are justified by faith. So which is better? On your own strength, by your own power, trying to keep the law of God, which you fail in every day, or having the full debt that you owe to God be paid by Jesus Christ, and by his grace alone, he comes by his spirit to live inside of you so that his very Holy Spirit will empower you not to live for yourself, but to live to God. Which one is going to produce more sin? Clearly living on your own strength under the law of God. Which one is going to produce more righteousness? Having Christ in you. So much so that Paul completely identifies his life with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, that just means in his human body, this earthly existence, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's the way our life is to be conducted now. Not by living under the law of God, but by living with faith in Jesus Christ. This is not just a one-time faith, just a one-time belief saying, Jesus, come into my heart. That's not the kind of faith this is talking about. Although there is a moment that faith begins, certainly. And at that moment, you're justified before God forever and always. But that kind of faith that believes in God in a saving way will continue. It's the kind of faith that daily says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Every day of your life, Sunday to Saturday, January to December, from the moment you're saved to the moment you go to heaven, is lived by faith in the Son of God. And it's such a dominating theme that you wake up in the, in the morning thinking, I belong to Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So dominate in your life that you look at your work and think, how do I do this unto Christ my Lord? It's so dominating a theme in your life that you think, whoever I marry, I need to do it unto the Lord. He is everything. Wherever I go to school, whatever job I take, how I raise my kids, how I interact with others, when I go to church, why I go to church, when I wake up, when I go to sleep, how I raise my kids, how I interact with my husband and wife, all of it is dominated by the constant theme that Christ is your life. But not because you're trying to be good enough, but because you trust him with your life because he died for you. And so you put everything in him. Can you honestly say that this very day it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Are you able to say you've died to the law, you've died to law-keeping, that's all been dealt with at the cross of Christ? Today, I live because Christ lives in me. And the mechanism by which I interact with Christ is not law-keeping, it's trust. You trust him as you make your decisions, 
as you go to work or school or wherever you go or whatever you do or whatever actions you take, it's to be done in faith in the Christ who died for you. This is so personal for Paul. Verse 20, when he mentions the Son of God and his faith in him, he goes on to qualify the Son of God and who he is. It is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You can so easily personalize this. This is why it's the most famous verse in the book. It's because it is so personal. We take it on our own lips and our own hearts. We go to the Lord in praise because we think He loved me. He personally loved me. He thought about me. He had tender affection towards me. But it didn't just stop at affection. It manifested itself in action because He gave Himself for me on my behalf In my place, he went to the cross to die in my place. He was my substitute because I certainly don't have nail prints in my hands and in my feet. He does, but he regards it as taking my curse on him so that it looks like there's nail prints in my hands and in my feet, but they're not because they're in Christ. But when God looks at me, he looks at Christ. He loves me. He gave himself for me. When you are so dominated by this truth that the very Son of God came to do that for you, to give himself for you, you can't even begin to think that Christ is a servant of sin. He did that for you. You can't even begin to think of living your life apart from him because he's given himself for you. You can't think that, you know what, I'm going to wander off and do my own thing for a little while because he gave himself for you. Unfortunately, we do think it. We do do it. He's gracious with us. And he's our shepherd and comes, pulls us back. But overall, the tenor of our life should be so consumed with the one who gave himself for me, who loved me, that we would not stray from this one inch. And that's why Paul says in verse 21, it all comes down to this. I do not nullify the grace of God. The grace of God is really encapsulated in the cross of Christ. Where else are you going to go for your salvation? How else are you going to get to heaven? Where else are you going to find somebody who loves you like that? Where else are you going to find somebody who gives himself for you like that? You won't find them except for in Christ. Do not nullify the grace of God. It's a gift. And you can't go to God with your resume and say, because of this, give me Christ. You can't go to God with all of your good works and say, because of these, give me Christ. You can't go to God with your accomplishments, your pedigree, your ethnicity, and say, give me Christ. The only thing you're left to say is, Christ sought me. Christ loved me before I loved him. Christ gave himself for me before I ever did anything for him. And so what is it then? It's not works of the law that got you Christ. It was a word that we love. It was grace. It's all a gift. From start to finish, you didn't earn one bit of Christ. He gave himself for you. So I don't nullify the grace of God. And he explains it. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could merit your standing with God based on your own righteousness, 
then Christ's death is meaningless and you don't need it. But you do need it and you can't earn it. And so it's grace. And that's where we stand. Does this lead us to sin more? No way. Is Christ a servant of sin? No way. Because we are so identified with Christ now that we have to live our lives with him, for him, by him, to him, unto him. Are you living by faith in the Son of God? Have you accepted his grace? Have you abandoned yourself of all hope that you have anything in your, hand, in your hands that you can bring? Or do you just come empty-handed, accepting that Christ paid it all? Do you accept his grace? Do you trust him? Do you believe him? If you have, do you so regard your life as intertwined with his that you say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you include such sweet explanations of the gospel for us. We thank you for Galatians 2.20. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We praise you that you would rescue sinners like us apart from works of the law. It's all a gift. And we embrace it by faith. Lord, would you help us this week to see any ways that we are regarding our standing before you as depending on our, our works. And Lord, would you show us any ways that we are not constantly thinking that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Father, help us to meditate on these truths, to think about them, and very quick to repent of any ways that we're putting our self-righteousness forward and not living by faith in Christ. Help us, Father, to see it, to reveal it to us that we might live unto you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.